Did any of you ever try to run away from home? So fed up with your parents that you were like, I'm going to pack your bags. I'm going to get out of here. I don't care if you were six or 16. You, were, you, you decided, I'm done. I'm fed up with this. I am, I'm making a run for it. <clears throat> I can remember the one time, I, I never really wanted to, to run away from home. But there was a time I bolted, absolutely bolted, and it had nothing to do with my parents parenting me. Uh, it had to do with me driving my grandma's car through our garage. I was probably 11 or 12 years old, okay? And I had the most gullible, sweetest grandma ever. Her name was Esther. Esther, okay? And Esther, you know, grew up like a lot of uh, probably my age grandparents, you know, rural community, farm community, where the rules, you know, were a little bendable, right? Especially driving rules. And you grow up on a farm, you grow up in a rural area, you might learn to drive sooner or later. And so my, my grandma, Esther, she would pick us up after school, and I don't know how this happened. It probably was me, to be honest. I probably convinced her to let me drive the car down the driveway. Like, it became like a thing. I have no idea if my parents knew about it or not. That's why I think I was probably 12 years old, and my grandma had a red Oldsmobile. Do they make Oldsmobiles anymore? Probably not. No, they don't, do they? But she had the classic grandma, like, red Oldsmobile car. And so we would, I lived on a gravel road, and we had, like, this driveway that would be, go down and around and then just end up right on kind of like a ranch-level home with a little garage there. And so my grandma would stop the car right when we got to the driveway. Like, she would drive us home until we got into the driveway, and then she would let me switch spots with her. And then I would drive the car the rest of the way and park it. And there was one day coming home from school um, where I did that and I totally hit the gas and not the brakes when I went to stop. And I jammed my foot on the accelerator and the car lurched, not just through the garage door, but like the cement column separating the garage doors, okay? And on that cement column was a water line. And so I bust through it, concrete pillar falls on the hood, you know, like the whole thing, and then water's spraying. And I don't even know if, like, I put it in park or turn it off or whatever, but I bolted. <laughs> Absolutely bolted for, like, we had a creek and some woods and stuff like that. I can remember having on, like, a starter jacket, like a Pittsburgh Steelers or Nebraska Cornhusker starter jacket or something like that, taking off for the woods, leaped a fence, and just, like, hid where I'm sure she could see me. It was fall. There wasn't foliage. There weren't bushes with like hideable things or anything. It was just cold and leaves. And I just sat there and I remember, Justin, come back, come back, come back. Cause like I had to find, like I knew where the water main line was at. Cause there's just water spraying at this point. Like water spraying everywhere on the inside of our home. And I had to do that. And I just remember feeling so bad. <laughs> And I just wanted to hide, and I just wanted to not be found. Because underneath it all, there wasn't just, there wasn't just a fear of punishment, right? I mean, and that's deserving, right? I mean, she deserves to be punished, if we're honest, in that scenario. <laughs> it's like, who does that? Who lets their 11, 12-year-old grandson drive their car to park it? And some of you have. I mean, that's wrong, okay? No. 
But there was more than just like a fear of punishment. There was a layer of shame. Something deeper. This sense not of, okay, I did something wrong and I'm going to get in trouble for it. But this sense of, oh, I am wrong. And I think when you really mess up, when you really mess up in life, it's not just a fear of punishment. It's this fear of like, is there something wrong with me? And that's what we could call shame. And we grow up with this, this, this need for approval and this need of affirmation. And it's absolutely a part of how we're wired. It's absolutely how we're wired. We are wired to need approval. We are wired to need affirmation. To need to know that no matter what we're going to do, no matter how we might mess up, things are going to be okay. That we're still going to receive love. That we're still going to be accepted. And our parents, are, they are our first attachment in that sense. We need attachment. We need that bond, that primary bond that lets us know that we are loved no matter what. So that when we do mess up, when we do drive things into places where they do not belong, we don't just run away and never come back. We know that we have a place where we can be cared for and nurtured. And it's that primary caring for, that primary nurturing that is absolutely essential to growing up and maturing, to being emotionally responsible, healthy individuals. You know, it's kind of crazy to think about, but our, our parents, our parents are the first gods we ever know. Maybe it sounds weird to say it like that, but I mean, you come into this world screaming and kicking, and they're the first ones to feed you, to hold you, to care for you, to take care of every need you could possibly imagine. Our parents are the first gods we ever know. But gods, they are not. Gods, we are not. And so what a hard place to be if you're a parent, <laughs> to be the God of something. What a hard position it is to have to live as a father or a mother and to know you've got a lot of messed up stuff in you and that somehow this little thing <laughs> that you've brought into the world, you're responsible for caring for. Because it doesn't matter how good or bad your family was, okay? I kind of want to like throw that out of the equation today. Like, stop thinking about good or bad in this, okay? No matter how good or bad your family it was you came from, everybody's got scars. Everybody has wounds. Everybody has baggage. Because those little infants, little infants, they come into the world. The parents are the first gods they ever have. And no human, no human's created to exist in the God role for another human. But it's what we have. You know, I really wished, I really wish if I go back to like the origin of the universe and the origin of creation and, and what the Bible says, you know, is God, and, and Roy talked about this last week a little more in depth than I'm gonna go, so if you wanna go back and listen to last week's message, God, Roy talked about how God has existed eternally in family. That ultimately what God wants is he wants to extend his eternal family to us. And so that's where this whole like creating humanity comes from. 
is God existed in, with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, this idea of the Trinity, which is really mysterious, but God has always existed in eternal community. And what he wants is to extend that eternal community because he's generous and he wants people to be in that eternal community. And so he creates Adam and Eve and he creates humanity. But what I wish was, is I wish Adam and Eve could have just had some kiddos before things went south. Because there's no, like, how many different parenting models of discipline are there right now? Like, there's a lot. It would have been nice to see, like, one mom, one dad give us, like, one example of good parenting. And, like, okay, you do this when your kid does this, you know? Uh, instead of all these different, uh, you know, all of us kind of winging it. And kind of really just perpetuating the ways we were brought up. But Adam and Eve, they couldn't even, they couldn't even get to the kiddo phase, <laughs> They had everything they provided for, and then, and then they chose to disobey God. They chose to go their own way. They, they had a, a communal relationship with God. They walked in the garden with God, and God said, don't do this one thing. So, of course, they did the one thing, just like any kid does. <laughs> Got to test their boundaries, right? And so now we're left kind of wondering, what would it have been like? Can we even imagine what a perfect family would have been like? And, and we're left with this kind of hole and all of us are trying to just do our best. If you, if you are a parent or if you've been parented, like family, right? We're all kind of left where, with this hole. This, this hole where a perfect shaped family would exist. But none of us have ever experienced that before. And so now we're just trying to live life out of our past experiences. And, and for most of us, just trying to keep doing better than maybe our parents did for us or their parents did for them. See, we're not just born into this world physically. We're born into a way of life, you know? Every family, no, don't, get, get rid of good and bad, right? Just every family has its own little idiosyncrasies, right? <laughs> every family has its own way of giving and receiving love. Think about it like an economy. Every family has its own economy for giving and receiving love, for earning love, approval and disapproval. Just like I ran away, I just jetted, I just bolted, because like, I'm going to get disapproval. I've done something to break the laws of my family. I've broken the rule. I've done something bad. I'm not going to get love. That's what we're born into. We're born into a way of life. We're born into these units where we develop a style of relationship. Our styles of relationship that's how we give and receive love. And uh, most, all of our style of relationships, they're, they're part nurture and they're part nature. So we have a wiring. But in our families, it's where the style of relationships that we now have are cultivated for the very first time. And so a lot of us end up in these spots in life where, where now we're adults or we're trying to figure out uh, how to have good relationships but we've not done the work of thinking about what kind of style of relationships am I most like and what kind of style of relationship dominated my formative years. And so what I would love for you to do is I'm just going to kind of go through some styles of relationship. I want to ask you, which style of relationship most formed you or you most, most grew up with in your family of origin that has left the biggest influence or imprint on you? Now, some of you had a style of relationship, kind of like this drama, right? Some of you really identified with, uh, with Tracy, our actor, actress, and how 
for her, it was really hard to relate to God because she had a father, a parent figure in her life that was a dominator. And so some of you, the, 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 the biggest imprint on your formative years, as you were developing an understanding of how to give and receive love, you had an authoritarian, you had a dominator, you had somebody, it was very much their way or the, right? And it was out there and there was a, a, a force of personality that would overrule you or overpower you when you broke the rules or when you didn't behave by their rules, whether you knew it or not. And it was really up to you to figure those rules out, wasn't it? Because they were never very clear. Because humans are complex and they don't even know themselves, right? (laughs) So maybe the style of relationship that most affected you was that of a dominator. Maybe the style of relationship that most affected you was a hoverer, which is akin, I think, to a dominator, they just, they're more socially acceptable. <laughs> they're nicer about it. They're more manipulative. But they're the, they're the parent that seems nice on the outside, you know, but like they're really controlling and maybe they use words, not force, to overpower. I mean, did you ever feel like you really didn't have a choice growing up in the things that you did? So-and-so always had a plan for you. Mother, father, it doesn't matter. You couldn't do things good enough. And, and again, maybe they weren't a shouter. Maybe they weren't a yeller but they were just as much of a controller over your life. They just were a little more socially acceptable about it from the outside in. Um, Some of us had a a style of relationship that most affected them, and I'd like to think of this as kind of the nice parent. This is the parent who, like, your friends wish they had your parent as a parent, right? Like, oh, man, I wish my mom or dad was like you, right? Because they just seemed really nice all the time, and they were there for you, and they did nice things, and your friends really liked them a lot. But you, you always felt like something was missing. You always felt like you you struggled to connect with them. Again, they checked all the boxes on the outside, but there was a depth of relationship, probably also when you got to your teenage years, where you started to get a little, you got to be a little too much, right? And they started to withdraw. They didn't know how to handle you. And so, so they just, they were nice about it, but... They weren't really there for you. They didn't, they didn't know how to respond to your emotions and your hormones and what you were going through. And so you could tell they were kind of just putting in their time. Another style of relationship, the last one here, and, and this one is um, just as direct as the dominator, but in a different way. And they're just a plain a withdrawer, just an abandoner. And that might be literally you did not grow up with a father or mother figure. You just never knew them. You just never knew them at all. They weren't in your life at all. But there are uh, uh, parents who are withdrawers, emotional withdrawers, um, abandoners, um, just emotionally. Overworkers, just people who maybe aren't there that don't feel competent in their family dynamic. And so they find other competencies to relate to. And you never had a connection with that parent. Which style of relationship maybe? had the most, uh, do you remember the most? Do you feel like affected you? Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to become that exactly. In fact, you might go the other direction, right? Sometimes you run from the force 
that uh, is most powerful over you. You don't become like it. You try and run from it. You try to become the opposite of that. But that's not necessarily the right way to go either. <clears throat> See, I think when things get hard, this instinct of self-preservation kicks in. When, when I think of what the Bible calls sin, I think of it and I would describe it probably nine times out of ten. I would describe it as self-preservation. That I've got to take care of myself this instinct keeps, kicks in. I've got to do what it takes to make it in life. And I think now as a parent even, I'm starting to get that and it sucks, but it's like I am just as much of a dominator or a hover or whatever over my own kids as my parents were over me. That as much as I've tried to be a good parent, I still have this thing inside of me called sin, this thing of self-preservation where I want things to go my way and when I don't get my way, ugliness comes out. It was 100% on display Friday morning around 10.30 a.m. at my house because the kids were home from school. All the kiddos home from school. It was PD day. I'm, I'm here at home. <clears throat> and it was Valentine's. They had their Valentine's party on Thursday. So what did everybody come home with? Candy, right? Who likes Fun Dip? Who likes Fun Dip? Oh, fun dips the devil. <laughs> fun dip. If you don't know what fun dip is, it's, it's, it ends up in not a lot of fun. <laughs> not at my house. Fun dip's just a packet of sugar that you scoop, you lick the little candy spoon and you dip it in there and it's fun, right? Until it ends up on the couch and just a pile of green sugar that the golden retriever licked into the fabric. Because I'm doing, I was probably in like abandoner mode, quite honestly, because I had work to get done. And so like kids are home. So I'm in the front room of the house typing up this very message that we have today. And uh, I finally like, all right, time to kill the cartoons. Time to get off. Let's go. And I walk in there and they're getting up and then I'm like just a green spot in the fabric of licked into the fabric of the couch because the dog's just been licking on it and I lose it. I do. I am not regulated at this point, okay? I do not have self-regulation. I've gone from like stress, that I was just like, what are you, oh, throwing all the, can I, like, I went to all the extremes, right? <laughs> you guys, I'm taking all your money and paying for this couch and you guys can't have candy anymore. I'm gonna throw it all away, right? Like went as far over as I could. You know, I felt that surge of anger and adrenaline. And so I'm like, screw, screw you guys, this is, you're going to feel the pain I feel right now. <laughs> so should I be surprised then when the next morning um, we're doing a family day out, we're going to go uh, family day out, we're going to get coffee, um, we're going to go thrift store shopping, our family likes to do that and have some fun, um, but my daughter, my seven-year-old daughter, um, she has her seat in the minivan like leaned all the way back, I'm like, you got you to move it up, you know, like I'm not going to let you drive down the highway like that, and she loses it. And you know what my daughter does when she gets mad? She takes off her shoes and she throws them at you <laughs> from the back seat. And she has always done this. So I know it's not just nurture, I know it's nature too. She's wired in a certain way, right? See, we have this thing um, called nurture where we learn styles of relationship for giving and receiving love. And you have a default one. We, we default into normally either uh, control or withdrawal, overpowering or running away. 
But, it, but, but you, have, you have both of them there. And so um, I will get to a point, and you'll get to point two, where things aren't going away. You just be like, screw it. I don't want anything to do with this. And you walk out of the room, and you say something mean, and you, and you go away. And so we all grow up into these families, no matter how good, throw out good or bad, we grow up in these families and we learn these styles of relationship, these economies for how do I give love, how do I receive love? What's it going to take to give and receive love? What does God really want? What he wants is for us to be part of his family. He wants us to know a family where you don't have to earn love. Because, because God, if he's God, if he is God, and, and I'm not going to assume that everybody here today believes that, but if God is God, and he's infinitely good, he's infinitely rich in generosity, then his love doesn't cost us anything. We grew up learning, and everybody does this. You grow up learning, how do I get love? How do I get approval? What do I have to do to earn my worth and make myself feel valued? And what God wants is he wants you to give that up. He wants you to know you don't have to earn his love. You don't have to pay for it. It is a free gift from him because he is infinitely rich in resources and mercy. He wants you to be as part of his family and you don't have to do a thing for that. Ultimately, what we have to do, I think, when it comes to seeing God as parent and what we have to do in regards to family of origin and, and where we come from is, is what God wants is he wants us to be reborn into his family. And this whole idea of reborn, I mean, it kind of conjures up some cheesy images, right? Born again Christian, you know, <laughs> that whole thing. But it's actually a really, really central teaching of Jesus it's, it's really very important in understanding that we're all born into one family, but to, to get that free love, we have to be reborn, we have to have a second birth, we have to be born again into his family. And Jesus talks about this. This isn't just something on a sign. This actually comes from the Bible, this idea of being reborn or having a second birth. And I want to look at that. It's in John chapter 3. And so if you have a Bible, you can go to John chapter 3, verse 1. Or if uh, you have a Bible app, you can go to John chapter 3. But if you don't, we're going to put it up on the side screens right now. And I just want to read this because what Jesus is wanting us to see is he wants us to understand how important family is to God and how we have to under understand ourselves as being reborn into God's family. So in John chapter 3, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can, only, humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. 
The wind blows wherever it wants to, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. To know God as parent is, 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 can be a hard thing because of the baggage that we bring into it. And, and everybody brings baggage. Nicodemus brings baggage. Nicodemus brought this baggage into this whole understanding of, okay, I grew up in a certain way. I grew up in a certain culture. This is how I understand God. And Jesus says, if you really want to understand what it's like to be a part of God's family, you have to understand this idea of second birth, of being born again. We have to be born out of the family and the way we were raised in some ways, and we have to be born into God's kingdom. We have to be born into his economy of love. We have to be born into his value system. Because the ways we learned how to give and receive love, they're just flawed because they're human concepts. And what Jesus brought, Jesus brought a whole different way of understanding um, what the family of God was really like and what it's like to really be blessed even. I don't have the scripture for this, but I wanted to look at the Beatitudes today. I was thinking about this this morning. See, a lot of times we try to think about what does this really mean? What's different about um, the way we grow up and, or the way we consider the world and what we think about versus Jesus' way? And what are Jesus' value? And if you go to the Sermon on the Mount and you look at the Beatitudes, you're going to see that Jesus came and he brought a value system that really doesn't make sense to this world. I mean, we might say it because, again, it's nice to think it. It's nice to consider ourselves moral. But when you really think about what he's saying in the Beatitudes, it's a whole different system of giving and receiving love than the systems we're brought up with. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, if you look out at the world, you know, it's really hard to think about the poor being blessed, right? It's more of the rich that are blessed because you can pay for what you want. That's a more blessed life, right? Isn't it better to have more riches and to have better things and to, have, uh, to work more? But Jesus says, no, it's for those that are broken. My family is going to value the broken, the broken spirits, not the people who feel themselves put together. To be a part of my family is to embrace brokenness, not put togetherness. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We think of those who are comforted as, again, those who are having everything going the way they want it to go. But Jesus says, no, 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 my family, my family is going to value being with those who are hurting. Because it's when we're hurting, it's when we're most open to letting God be our absolute everything. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. My family, we're going to value putting ourselves underneath others. We're going to value serving each other. We're going to value loving the small things in life. We're not going to value reaching for powerful places in the world. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. We all, to be a part of Jesus' family, it means to value the right things of this world, honesty, integrity. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It means my family isn't going to live an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
We're going to value grace. We're going to value giving people better than they deserve. And he keeps going on and on, and you can keep reading Jesus' teachings as Jesus really wants us to see. And what he's trying to say is like, we're born into these families through physical flesh and blood, right? But we're not just born into a family from a flesh and blood sense. We're born into a family that has a certain value system. And we all learned a certain value system of what it means to give and receive love. But we have to adopt and we have to be adopted into his value system. We have to be born out of our old way of life and into a new way of life. A way of life that is about mercy, forgiveness, compassion, grace of not having to earn love anymore. And that's the only way to break cycles of dysfunction, the cycles of dysfunction in yourself and the cycles of dysfunction in the world. I think about the shooting that happened this past week. You know, my kids and I, we were at the parade on Wednesday. Now, we were far away from it. We were actually home before the rally began because we went and we got uh, spots up on North Grand. So we were at the very beginning of the parade. And um, obviously the shooting happened after the rally at the very end. And so we were very far away. We were home before the rally even started. So we were in no danger at all. But just thinking about that whole situation. And, and right now, even thinking about the suspects themselves, the juveniles, the ones that are being detained right now, they need to be born out of whatever system they were born into, right? That system of violence or a system of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, because all we know right now is there was a dispute, and who knows what that is, but it led to indiscriminate shooting, right? Something triggered a dispute, a fight, and the system they were born into, or the system they learned, was a system of retaliation. They have to be, they, they need that desperately right now in their jail cell. They desperately need to be born out of those values of retaliation and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and they need to be born into the free grace of God. That even with the horrible things they have done, they can be forgiven and loved by Jesus. They desperately need that right now. I think about the victims who, you know, children, adults, Right now, are in a you know. Right now, if you think about it like this, they need to be born out of the anxiety and trauma that they've just experienced, and into the safety and security that a God is going to take care of them. Even for the family that had, that had, um, I believe it was Lisa who died, the DJ. You know, they're born out of right, born out of a system of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and revenge and vengeance that's just going to eat away at the soul into a system of grace and mercy and forgiveness. I think um, myself, you think about bystanders or media or people who watched it, like how we have to be born out of our own prejudices. Like when I heard they were shooting, and my mind conjured up a mental image of who were the perpetrators, it was hard for me not to imagine a person with a different color skin than me. That's prejudice. I have to be born out of my prejudices about who commits violent crimes and into a new system that, that gets away from any kind of um, racism that maybe I was brought up with. So we all, you get that? What does Jesus really want? He wants us to be born out of our dysfunctional systems and into a new value system of what he explains in the Beatitudes of mercy, grace, meekness, humbleness, not seeking vengeance, not seeking power, but seeking to set other people free 
And what is it we need to be most freed from? Our sin. Our system of self-preservation. That when things get hard, we take care of ourselves instead of generously looking out for others. Generosity is what marks God's family. And that's the system we need to be born into. And the only thing that can really do that is the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is kind of like the midwife in this scenario, the doula. We have this old system of non-life and this new system of God's family that operates on complete free grace and love. And we need Jesus to bring us through that. In Romans, 12, uh, Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, he writes it a little differently, but it's really the same concept that Jesus is talking about, about being born again. The Apostle Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. What ends up happening, or, or what Paul's trying to explain, and he uses this word adoption. And, and you really, um, I, I've had it said to me before, I can remember reading, you can't understand what Jesus did. You can't understand the New Testament. You can't understand the entire message of the Bible if you do not understand adoption. Because adoption always has a cost with it. Right? Adoption always costs something. And so, Adoption is going to cost you emotionally, and I know some of you have adopted in this room, so you know there's an emotional cost with adoption, right? <laughs> the waiting, the wondering, is this going to happen or not? There's just an inner turmoil that you can't even explain. There's a financial cost, right? Some, you know, my wife and I looked at it one time at what it cost to like adopt. It was like $30,000. Like, there's a financial cost to adopting. There's also a legal cost, Right? Because if you're going to adopt um, a child, you're going to bring that child into your home, you're responsible for them. You're responsible for their consequences. I mean, that's what it means to be a parent, right? Is, is at, at a, up till a certain point, you're responsible for their wrongdoing. You're responsible for their consequences because they're your child. And so if you bring in a child into your home that has baggage, that has trauma that has some brokenness, and everybody does, right? You're the one that's responsible for helping them with their brokenness. Which is why you can't understand the Bible, you can't understand Jesus, and you can't understand the Father's love without understanding adoption. Because what God did was he unadopted Jesus so that he could adopt you. Jesus gives up his spot. And this is where it goes. He goes into, uh, go ahead and put up John 3. The second part of John 3 says this. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. And Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you still don't understand these things. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I 
tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe me about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man, a name that he, he made for himself, has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, he's talking about himself here, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. What Jesus is explaining and what the Bible's trying to get across to us is the consequences of sin have to go somewhere or else God's not good, right? The consequences of sin, the consequences of brokenness, they have to go somewhere or else God's not really loving. And Jesus, Jesus is the one that says, I'll accept those consequences. I want you to be so a part of my family. I want you to be so close to the Father. I'm willing to step away from the Father. And so what Jesus does, he steps away from the Father. He comes down to earth. He enters into the flesh. He takes on all the flesh that we have, yet still contains all the deity that he has. He unadopts himself on the cross so that through the cross, we can be adopted into God's family. And I love what Apostle Paul finishes. And Roy read this last week, and I want to just read this to end with this week because it's like, what do we get? What do we get by Jesus being unadopted and us being adopted and taking his place? And it's Romans 8. And I'm just going to read that right now. Verses 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us, whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself, has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. I think about when we're in our shame, when that, that feeling of disapproval just has a hold of you, I think about Jesus pleading for me right next to the Father, saying, you don't have to feel shame. You don't have to be condemned. All that happened already. All of that has been put onto the cross. That's what he went to the cross for. This whole parenting dynamic, it's so much about approval and disapproval. <laughs> it's so much about how we receive love and what we have to do to get love. And what Jesus is trying to say through Romans 8, 31, is, and, and what Paul's trying to say is that we don't have to earn it anymore. Is that it was proved ultimately by God's own son going to the cross, Jesus accepting the consequences for our brokenness so that we can be put together. And so all of that broken family crap that we all have to go through, it gets mended and it gets redeemed in what Jesus did on the cross. And it's by faith now. It's by faith. You don't have to do it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be good. You don't have to do the checklist thing anymore. You just have to, in your heart, say, you know what? I believe you died for me. And I want to live a life of free, unearned grace and love from this point forward. Would you guys pray with me, please?
Father, we struggle um, because we're humans, and so we only have a human understanding of love. We have a limited understanding of what it means to be loved, and there is this hardwiring in us, there's this thing inside of us that, that, that makes us feel like we always have to prove it. And we feel like, we, I mean, we know, we know we have it, we, we, that we're messed up. We know that we don't love others well. We know that we want others to prove it to us. We know that we don't seek um, to be humble. We don't seek to not have recognition. We're always hungry. We're always hungry for this, this, this inner need to be recognized, this inner need to feel approval. And we get it from the wrong sources. And because we, we try and get it from the wrong sources, we do stupid things. And we hurt others. We hurt ourselves. And what we need is we need you as a parent, as an ultimate parent, an ultimate father, an ultimate mother. We need you to be that ultimate, loving, unconditional, unfailing force in our lives. Because if we don't connect with that, we, we, need, to, we, need, to, we need to make you our primary attachment. Because that's where we're going to get the security we need to not have to prove anything anymore, to let down our guard, to live an authentic life, to admit our mistakes and learn, to admit our mistakes and learn in your presence, which will never reject us and never kick us out. In the name of Jesus, amen.